0: Fish Nerds, a show about fish, fishing, and eating fish. I'm Clay Groves, licensed fishing guide and chief executive fish nerd of the Fish Nerds Media Empire. <laughs> hey, thanks so much for listening. Um, it, it's, really, it's really great that people, you guys, care enough to listen every week and subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Stitcher or wherever it has you do it. It, it really means a lot to me, and I love doing the show. And so I thank you so much so, so much. Uh, Before we begin, let you know this show is supported by you, the listeners, and our only sponsors are you, the listeners. And the way you help the show, the best way to help the show is to go to patreon.com slash Nerds and help us crowdfund the show. Patreon is just like Kickstarter for ongoing projects. So we're asking listeners to give us a dollar an episode to keep the show going. It's four bucks a month. So if you think this show is valuable, if you enjoy it, if it makes you laugh, smile, think about things differently, uh, whatever, entertain you for an hour, and that's worth a dollar, we're asking everybody to put a dollar in the hat. And if if we could get all the listeners to put a dollar in the hat, I can make my living making this podcast. And I'd have enough money to pay my poor correspondents, my poor, poor correspondents, pay my editors, pay for better equipment, and all the things that we need to do. Uh, if you give us $1 an episode, $4 a month, I'll mail you a decal, and I'll thank you, and you'll be in our fishy prayers. If you give us $2 an episode, I'll mail you a decal, you'll be in our fishy prayers, and I'll give you a Fish Nerds rag. If you give us $5 an episode, you get all those things, plus a Fish Nerds hat or beanie. And here's the cool thing, if you give us $25 an episode, that's a sponsorship level, I will talk about your business on the show. So any of you people who have uh, who make fishing lures or run any other kind of business out there and you want us to talk about you, 25 bucks an episode a good deal. Go to patreon.com slash fishnerds. Give us some money there, and I will take care of it from there. Uh, we do have one person donating at that level, Josh Lopes from lopestax.com. If you need an accountant... And you're in the Massachusetts area, and tax season's coming up. Go to lopestax.com for all your tax needs. Josh Lopes gives us $25 a week. It's fabulous. You can even hire me to speak at your stuff, at your engagement, at your gigs, or whatever you want to call it, through Patreon. So go to patreon.com slash And it really does matter. Every dollar matters. Help us crowdfund the show. We appreciate that. Thank you so much. Links, of course, in the podcast description. All right, so tonight on the show, or today on the show, depending on what time of day you're listening to it, we've got part two A Fish Guy Josh meets Fish Guys. Then we go deep into the news. We talk about eels in Chicago and tuna hanging from trees in Gloucester, Massachusetts. Then, after the news, Fish Guy Josh and Doc Martin are here, like a couple of supervillains, talking about their segment, Fish of the Day. You're going to love this. Let's jump right on in. All right, so Fish Guy Josh has been part of our show for a long time, a couple of years. He works as a biologist in California. He brings us part two of his story on swimming with whale sharks, or as Finding Dory says, Swimming with whale sharks. You can find part one on episode 174. Links, of course, are in the show notes. Fish Guy Josh has, also has a great YouTube channel. Go to YouTube, look for Fish Guy Josh. You can see some great Gar videos and other cool things there. Here's Fish Guy Josh.
1: Fish Guy meets Fish Guys. Fish Guy. Fish guy. Fish Guy meets Fish Guys. Fish Guy. Fish Guy Josh. Greetings fellow fish nerds, Fish Guy Josh has returned for another edition of Fish Guy meets Fish Guys. Now I really hope you enjoyed the first half of our conversation with Brian Young Jr. of Seahorse Dive Shop in Placencia, Belize. During our first conversation we briefly talked about whale shark behavior and the techniques for finding whale sharks in Belize while scuba diving. This week we're going to dive into the complicated world of the whale shark regulations of Belize. It's these regulations that help the tourist dive industry there thrive while still managing the conservation of these amazing creatures. Enjoy.
2: They actually help form the rules and regulations that are out there as well. Oh, your dad did? Yeah, yeah. We started, uh, we started an NGO to
1: um, protect the area. Does he work with the government to
2: uh, no, it's a, uh, set those um, laws? Or? No, no. It's a non governmental organization. Um, uh, sea. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, they they um they manage the park, and as part of a working group of tour operators, we come up with rules and regulations and how to, oh, how that's, to operate out there. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. So yeah. you guys, as a tour group, make up the rules, not the government. Yeah, not the government. So far, the government wants to. Though. <laughs> oh, what yeah. do they want to do differently? They, they want to increase the park fees. Okay. Of so course. so they probably will <laughs> they probably will. They were supposed to do it this year. And they probably will. Right to the end they said they weren't weren't gonna raise it again, they were gonna raise it to hundred um US for the park fees. And it's it's now thirty US and then they're gonna raise it again. They're thinking about raising it wow. next year definitely.
1: So how does that work between the government and the non government agency? Right? Um
2: based in the the revenues they make and then they get a percentage of it back from the government
1: as well. Oh, okay. Just so money's part. So you guys, it kind of sounds like you guys do a lot of the work and come up with the regulations Nations, and yeah, they decide much. how much money to charge? Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
2: something, like that, something like that, yeah. Wow. Yeah, because it's a working, uh, it's a working group of the tour operators and yeah. the stakeholders and then um, each year we, we sit down and talk about what happened and what, what we need to do better and stuff like that and then, um, come up with rules and regulations and how, how to operate out there. Yeah.
1: Man, see, there's you know some interesting stuff that Yeah, you're talking because, about, man. That's really because,
2: cool. Because, um, yeah, that came about, um, there's a rule like uh, only six boats can be in the park at any time. Okay. That so was because, safe. yeah, that was because there was like 20 boats out there. So we decided to limit to six boats and that's
1: how the time slots came about. So if, say, just take, for example, Splash. Dive center. So if they have three boats going out and you guys have three boats going out, and a few other dive operators all want to go out, mm-hmm. so they set up. How, how does that? How does the time slot work? The time slots
2: rotate each each day from different different time. It'll start in. Um, you get two time slots: one in the morning and one in the afternoon. And each each day it changes time. Each there's an hour and a half interval each time, so it changes between each tour group. Yeah, and each day. Each day changes between each tour group. Okay. And does each tour group have a set time or is it like a lottery? It, or? Yeah, it's a lottery. you got to pick a lottery. Oh, okay. You pick a lottery for um, different time slots. Yeah. So you get a lottery morning time and a lottery, lottery after- afternoon I'll tell you time? Actually, you get one lottery. Yeah, pretty much. The When you pick the lottery, it's you get a morning slot and an afternoon slot. So if you get the first slot in the morning, you'll get the first slot
1: in the afternoon. Oh, okay. So, so your, you're your not slots out, yeah, match.
2: Yeah, so you're not out there all day. I'm waiting to the very okay. end of the day. Exactly.
1: Okay. Interesting.
2: But it's then a- sometimes we, we swap slots with operators and are not going out that day to get the prime time slots.
1: Oh, so if they don't have anything booked? Yeah. Then then we can use the time slots that, that they have. So does that So that would be, for example, say Seahorse got slot... Let's call it slot number one, Uh uh, which was first in the morning, first in the The afternoon, afternoon. Uh and another dive operator wasn't going slot number two. Yeah. You could go out one, two, and
2: one, two. Yeah. Yeah. But then um you'd have to uh, let the rangers know that you want the slot and if they don't show up if they if they don't show then the slot series is first come first serve that way unless the two, other tour operator the other tour operator assigns it to someone else. Oh
1: okay. So, so they, they can say they have perform the yeah, ranger
2: they, we're giving our time up. Yeah, they can they can do that or they can leave it and then the tour, the ranger will assign it
1: to Okay.
2: To someone out there.
1: Now with the with you guys sort of being the group of tour operators developing these guidelines do you guys utilize like any um, university or science, scientists to perform any data or what, yeah, work with those to, guys? Yeah,
2: used to in the in the in the early days they used to used to be um, Will and used to do some research out there as well as um, can't remember her name though. They used to do um, um, talking of the sharks and stuff, and that's how oh, okay. you know they're up the and down the barrier from where they go after they go from.
1: And they would, I guess, give you information. They would give us information. You guys and, yeah, make in that your way, decisions?
2: yeah, in that way, as well as C also does some research out there as well. Okay. And fish
1: count and stuff like that. And how does does C get funded? They get uh, funded. What does it in, What does it stand for again? Uh, Southern Environmental Association. Southern Environmental Association.
2: Yeah, they they get fund basically from donors and um, the. the Amount of money they make from the government don't, doesn't cover all the costs, oh, okay. so they get funded from donors and stuff like that. So C makes up all the rules and does the regulations. Uh-huh. Only for that part, we, for that we part. only that, for that part we get a say in there. The rest of the parks are solely managed by them.
1: Okay, and how much? How what percentage would you say of park fee profits does C get versus have, the government? I have no idea. Okay. Uh, that's internal. I have no idea. And I'm guessing, the fact that. C lets the government take the profits? They, they don't
2: let the it's, government... It's in the
1: law, basically. So oh, okay. They, so so. The, but the government has agreed to let you guys, for now... Well, that was... Do most of the regulations, or make up most of the regulations. Yeah,
2: most of the regulations, And they much. just kind of... true use, C. It's a working, C makes the regulations. We, as a working group, consult with them. Oh, okay. So you guys aren't part of C officially. Officially, no. You're sort of like a council. Yeah, working group, and then C makes the decisions pretty
1: much based on what they find and what you guys yeah, suggest
2: suggest yeah oh
1: okay and then the government has the final I'm guessing has final, the final thing yeah
2: because they have to see if it's the regulations we, we put forward or legal okay yeah if it's not breaking any laws or illegal
1: okay hmm that's pretty interesting. And how do you think your regulations fare versus, like, uh, say, in, like, like, other parts, like in Mexico where they do whale sharks? Like, do you guys ever compare yeah, they, what uh,
2: they see? Back in the early days, there used to be um, a whale shark working group with, I mean, uh whale shark comes with everybody from Honduras, uh, Mexico, um, and Belize. They had once, they had it here once. I think they did it in Mexico a year and in Honduras the next year. Where they discuss different procedures and stuff, and we share ideas and, and stuff yeah. like that.
1: Because I, I mean, I've heard that you guys are um, above and beyond as far as the regulations go. Like, I've heard you guys. Yeah, it's, it's it heavily regulated,
2: well. yeah, but um, I think. I mean, in a good way. Yeah. You know. um, I think Mexico does a really good job as well. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Cool. But, um, the whole bunch.
1: Very interesting.
0: Fish guy, Fish guy, Josh. All right. Hey, thanks, Josh, so much for being part of the podcast. And fishner Josh, by the way, started off as a listener and then became part of the show. You can do that, too. If you want to contribute to the show, just send me an email, clay at fishners.com, and I will tell you how you can get involved. I, I like having lots of voices on the show, so it's a lot of fun to have listeners sharing information. So... How about some news? But before I get into that, last week we had huge rainstorms in New Hampshire, resulting in huge masses flooding uh, this fall. This summer, there are huge storms in Texas, Florida, and Puerto Rico, also causing flooding. And the guy's really thinking about what happens to fish in floods. When a flood comes through, does it wipe the fish out? Does it move the fish? Does it kill all the eggs? What Happens to Fish and Floods? I'm doing some research. Next week, we're going to dive deep into flooding and fishes next week on the show. So stay tuned. If you have information, if you know anything about that, clay at fishners.com is my email. Send me an email. Give me some information because uh, there's not a lot of information out there. And everyone's saying, what happens to the fish? And I'm saying, I don't know. So we're going to figure all that out on next week's show, or at least we'll start having that conversation. Hello, uh, I'm here with Captain Sean Tibbets from MaineTunaFishing.com for a really important news story. Sean, how are you? Good. How are you, Clay? I'm doing good. Great, glad to hear your voice. You're you're, calling, you're 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 in your car right now, chatting with me. Uh, and this, that's yeah. how important this was. You had to pull over and call me right away <laughs> because this story uh, really made you mad. And if there's anyone I've ever been afraid of making mad is Captain Sean Tibbetts. So we're going to... No. No. <laughs> no. I'm we a actually... teddy bear. Yeah, that's why we snuggle all the time. Um, but this is actually a really, really oh. cool, interesting story. So this is from NECN. And the headline is, Fishy Story, Headless 400-pound Tuna Found in the Woods. And this is not a Halloween story. This is a for real, for real story. And uh, so so it runs like this. Spotting a 400-pound tuna in the Massachusetts seaport of Gloucester knows America's oldest seaport is not unusual. But finding a headless tuna in the woods is a bit odd, right, to say the least. Uh, State police uh, and federal fisheries regulators are trying to figure out who dumped the headless fish (laughs) that had to be hauled out of the trees by a tow truck. Um, and that's really all there is to the story someone caught a fish at a season and put pretty it, much and put it in the woods and nobody knows the story behind it um, and just kind of give some background when did the tuna season close sean
3: uh it was open for a couple of days in October um the quota was the, the, there wasn't much quota left so i, I it might have been open for a week maybe a week and a half i'm not positive my memory's so a little nearly, out nearly a month mind. right <laughs> yeah it's yeah. been closed over a month and it's closed the entire month of november
0: right and so there's no uh, and and just in your regular fishing experience have you ever hung a tuna from a tree
3: uh, no no even so when it really makes fish... makes you mad <laughs> yeah no so the thing that the thing that makes me angry about this is the fish was obviously prepared for commercial sale. The Mm -hmm. head was removed um, by the picture that I saw. The head was removed. Um, They had cut the tail to bleed it out properly. Somebody knew what they were doing when they processed this fish for commercial sale and uh, brought it into, apparently brought it into Gloucester or somewhere close to Gloucester was told uh, you can't have that. And instead of, uh, I don't even know what you're supposed to do at that point. Um, but obviously have. dumping it in the woods was not the right choice,
0: right. so um, they they caught this thing last season. They prepped it for sale, so they were professionals in some level and at some level, out, yep, and someone turned them away, which means somebody knows something.
3: Somebody knows something. Um, you know, the value of the fish right now, it's not really worth much. I mean two to four bucks, four mm-hmm. bucks being the high. Um, And there were a lot of no sales, which basically equates to we ship the fish and it sold for what the broker had into it to ship it. Um, So you don't get a check or you get a check for relatively nothing. Um, But obviously, this fish specifically was caught out of season. There's no way that that fish had been in the woods for a month Um, and it got wasted. Um, somebody knows something you don't pull into a dock anywhere and nobody's and somebody and you don't get seen especially with a tuna fish it's like somehow the entire world knows you have a tuna fish on at two o'clock in the morning <laughs> you come into the dock and all of a sudden there's 40 people at the dock watching you offload the thing um you know me personally we do not fish for tuna fish um, even though you're allowed to fish during the recre dur- on the recreational side in the closed commercial season, um, you're allowed to keep recreational sized fish and you're allowed to catch and release giants. We personally do not. Um, we that that resource is entirely it's too precious to us to even target those uh, fish. I prefer to leave them alone, let them grow, and uh, we'll. Go at it again next year, or go at it again when the season opens up again. Um, You know, somebody knew some, somebody knows something somewhere, and uh, that should never have happened.
0: No, it shouldn't. And and one of the things I, whenever I see poaching going on, or these kind of out of season fishing going on, and it gets in the the national news, I think it's bad for the entire industry because people, somebody will take this and reflect it back on all fishermen, all tuna fishermen. Do this exactly. And I think that's the most harmful thing and not just the dead fish, but like now there's people going to be more against fishing and more against what you're doing. And and that's kind of troubling as well.
3: It is. I know, um, like I said before, we personally, the minute they close the season, we're done. Uh, I mean, we do not catch and release tuna fish. I don't take catch and release charters. We don't catch and release period. Um, those fish should be protected um at, at all costs. look, season's closed. There shouldn't be a catch and release fishery on giants, and I know i am <laughs> I know I'm gonna rattle some cages by say by saying that, but it, the season's closed for a reason yeah have you, you know, um, it's just like, have
0: have you read any studies on catch and release of giant fish? I've always like I know when you catch small fish, you can exhaust them and they could die. I'd imagine the giant tuna yep. gets even more exhausted and releases must be hard on the fish. Do you know anything about that?
3: I I have not. I'm not an expert on it. I do know um, the Canadian fishery allows a they the Canadian boats are allowed. We're allowed to catch and release. The Canadian boats are allowed to catch and release on their charter permits. Um, it's the same thing with us. A charter a charter boat um, is a, we're allowed to fish in both categories, both the general commercial category and the recreational category so when the charter season is or when the uh, commercial season is closed I can I still have the option to take my customers on a catch and release charter um, the Canadians have a highly highly regulated uh, catch and release I, I believe they're allowed uh, 59 minutes at, at 60 minutes they have to cut the fish off um, so to time- alleviate the a timed catch. Yeah, it's a, a timed. timed it's a timed catch. You have sixty minutes to get the fish to the boat, remove the hook, and let the fish swim again. Um, we don't have those restrictions in the U.S. side, um, for whatever reason. Uh, I, like I said personally, I am one hundred percent against the recreational fishermen. Those fish should be left to breed um, until they get to the proper size to breed and catching. Recreational size fish, those fish have not had a chance to spawn. Um, but that's my personal opinion.
0: Um, yeah, that's a, that's, I think it's valid. So, what do you think uh, is going to happen if they catch the person? I think they will catch the person because someone knows. What do you think is going to happen to the person they catch? Like, what's the, do you have an idea what the rules are on that? Like, if it's a commercial well, the, the fine,
3: versus... the fines are very steep. Um, but with everything else with with fines, um, I believe the fine is a maximum of two years in prison and $10,000 cash. Um, that's that's your maximum fine. Where this story hit the national news, the National Marine Fisheries Service and Massachusetts Environmental Police aren't going to have much of an option but to throw the max fine at these guys. Um, you know, the max fine is $10,000 and two years in prison. Uh, and personally, I hope that they get the max fine. Um, realistically, they'll probably get slapped with a couple, couple thousand dollar fine um, and possibly loss of fishing privileges or loss of the commercial fishing privileges or whatever permit that they hold um, for a couple of years. So, yeah, you don't expect
0: a huge uh, <laughs> a huge hit on no. that. That's too bad no. um, because okay, so it's really terrible for the whole industry and bad, for, obviously, for the fish. So it's sad to see all these things. Um, well, Sean, yep. th- thanks for your input. People who want to follow Captain Sean, go to MainTunaFishing.com. If you want to book your tuna charter for next summer, Sean's booking right now, right, Sean?
3: I am. <laughs> and he'll do it legally do and it. ethically. <laughs> yes, I'm pretty good at that.
0: Yeah, perfect. <laughs> all right, thanks, Sean. Welcome to the Fish Nerds. Uh, I'm here. Actually, I'm not here. I'm here in my basement, but I am actually streaming live into Chicago with David Jakubiak. David, uh, tell me about your organization and where you're from. First off, thanks for having me, man. Sure. Happy um, to have you.
4: We are a Midwest-based environmental organization. We we tend to work in what we call the core clean, clean air, clean water, clean energy, clean transportation. Um, when I come into it, I'm the media guy. What we like to do is kind of take issues that everybody has heard a little bit about and find ways to make them connect to everyday people. And so, what better way to do that with clean water than by taking people fishing?
0: And and take, and what is the name of your organization? The Environmental Law and Policy Center (ELPC) and that website is elpc.org. And I heard of you because our mutual friend Olaf said hey you've got to talk to david and then you emailed me and we caught each other on twitter right sure thing. yeah so so you take people fishing as part of your job
4: yeah we uh we have what we call the elpc fishing team mm-hmm. and we are lucky to be based right across the street from the chicago river walk perfect so just keep some fishing poles you can see in back of me i got my tackle box my fishing poles in my neck and uh we just take people over the lunch hour and we say let's see what we can pull out of the river
0: That's amazing. (laughs) What a great job. Congratulations. (laughs) Do you, you, is it your, do you own the, no, you're the media guy, but this is a bigger organization. Yeah,
4: we, we are a, I mean, we are a pretty serious law and policy shop, but we do, we are allowed to have some fun as long as we're showing results.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, there's a lot of good evidence that fun leads to results. If you want to get people on your team or to support your policy and they're having fun with you, they're more likely to support it. You know, if you can do an environmental law in a way that shows it's
4: fun, you win, right? Absolutely. And, you know, here in Chicago, at least, and there's a lot of cities and communities around the country that have a similar experience. You have a waterway that has a really bad reputation locally because of historical pollution that occurred there, right? I I grew up in central Massachusetts, and, you know, they play love that dirty water every time the Red Sox win, right? Mm -hmm. Chicago is the same thing. We have a waterway that literally threads through the entire city that a lot of people for a long time considered an open sewer. And the reason for that is that our sewer system was designed, we literally reversed the river to flow towards the Mississippi River to carry sewage and industrial waste down into the Gulf of Mexico. Gross. That's disgusting. <laughs> so then we got the, the Clean Water Act and a bunch of people started saying, let's see if we can do better with the river. And it was actually just a couple of years ago, we finally got the local sewer district it's called the Metropolitan Water the Resource Reclamation District, it finally started discharging its ep- or, or disinfecting its effluent before it discharges it into the river. And another thing happened, and that is the city invested a lot of money in building a brand new, beautiful river walk with restaurants and fountains for the kids to splash around in. And what that people closer to the river than they've ever
0: been before. Well, it's, it's interesting. I'm going to stop you for a second. A- interesting thing, and I used to work um, in Lawrence, Massachusetts, if you know Central Massachusetts, you know all the, the mill yard histories. And you're seeing in the last 10 years, that's the trend to all those old river towns, is creating river walks. And the theory behind it is, if people are using the resource, they're going to take better care of the resource, right? And and okay. so those river walks nationally have been really a big thing, and they're stunning. Um, I haven't been to the Chicago one because I've never been inside the middle of the country. I don't understand why it's even there. <laughs> I'm a coastal guy. But uh, it, it's it's amazingly cool stuff. That's really great. And so what kind of fishes are you catching right there in the Chicago River?
4: We've caught eight species. Um,
0: and that was on your event you had just very recently.
4: We caught seven, I think, during the event. Um, we we didn't catch the invasive round goby, which kind of shocked me because it's really pervasive here. Um, but typically, we catch a lot of your panfish: so bluegills, green sunfish, pumpkin seeds. Um, there's we caught a few yellow perch, a lot of carp. We can uh, common carp. Got to Put an exclamation point. We're not talking silver bait, that Asian carp. They're not here. But common carp, we are pulling out of the river. Um, think what else have we gotten oh and then your cats so a lot of bullheads
0: and a lot of really nice channel cats uh f- fantastic you know incidentally my, my partner uh, my previous partner with the podcast dave kellum has a state record channel catfish for new hampshire really yeah now right. now out in chicago your your big channel cats would be like 30 pounds in new hampshire the record's almost 13 pounds so they're new to the state they're kind of coming in from the south we don't know why they're here, but why don't we get into our, we're, we're going to have you here for the news today, yeah. and so we're going to get into our first story, and since we're talking about the Riverwalk anyway, why don't we talk about the Chicago Fishes Reels in a Rare Cat Catch, the story that was a blitz over Twitter like a week and a half ago, and I and I kept posting on Twitter, where is this story? I couldn't find the actual story. I just kept seeing a picture of this kid with a fish that we don't normally see in the Chicago River. And I'm going to let you tell the story, and I'll just interrupt you with
4: questions. So we had this, this fishing event, and the idea was let's get as many people out fishing the river to see. Well, first, get them down to the river to fish so they can have the experience, and then see what can we catch. And that caught on, right? We, we even had people come up from the shed Aquarium. We had scientists from the Shed and come up because they wanted to see what people were catching. And I was fishing. I got my, my wife brought down my kids. My son asked me to, to walk her back to the bait guy to get a new crawler on his on his hook. And a person comes up to me and goes, Hey, this kid just caught an eel. And I dropped a couple expletives in front of my 10-year-old because there's, there's no bleeping way that this kid just pulled an eel, an American eel on the Chicago River. Right? I'm like, what? I don't know what it is. I don't know if he hooked into a water snake or, I don't know, a lamprey maybe, or he like fouled it, you know? I sort right. of found, and there's this little kid, and I'll send you a picture that you can you can use. Sure. A little five-year-old kid, cute as a button with his little Cubs hat, not knowing what the Dodgers were about to do to him. And he's holding this two-foot-long eel. Jeez. And it, it blew my mind. Because, because they're, they're not common out there. Well, A, they're not common. B, when you think about the number of barriers that an eel needs to get through, it's getting here one or two ways. It's either coming up through St. Lawrence and through the lakes and somehow getting into the river, or it's coming up the Mississippi. And coming through the, the channel system and then getting into the main well, Why
0: don't we stop for a second and give some background on the American eel so people understand why this is so impressive? So so I, I'll, just, I'll just take the lead on this one. So, um, American eels, I, one of my favorite fishes, they're a fish, right? That means they're born in the ocean, Sargasso Sea area, they live in freshwater and they migrate back out to the ocean to spawn. From what I understand, and correct me if, if I get this wrong, David, the, they migrate into the estuary areas, the males stay near the brackish Estuary areas, and the females will migrate inland from seven to like 20-some-odd years. So no one's really sure exactly that range. And and they'll keep migrating inland and keep migrating inland. They'll even... Um, one of the rare fishes you could find is roadkill in some, some places. They'll come out of the water rainy nights and cross roads. They'll come out and hunt at nighttime. And they could be anywhere in North America because they have so much time to travel and they're so adaptive. And so Chicago, being so far from their birthplace makes it uh, a remarkable find. Uh, incidentally, I think they're the only catadromous fish in the Northern Hemisphere, but in North America, there is no freshwater eels. If you find an eel, it's an American eel. Yeah, oh, yeah. Right? Am I right? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and so that's why it's impressive.
4: It's it absolutely inc- incredible. And Bill Willink, at the shed, estimated that this fish swam 3,000 miles. Easily. And to think that it just... After we, 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 we paused there. The Illinois Department of Natural Resources was one of the first places we went with the picture of this kid with the eel. The head of fisheries at the IDNR, a guy named Dan Stevenson, said, I need to check the record. I don't think we've ever gotten one in the Chicago River. Mm-hmm. So my next was to the Park District, and I said... In all of the parks in Cook County, have you ever seen any yield? Yeah, we got we got one in a lake way in the southern part of the county about four years ago. I think we've gotten three in the last 25 years. And I said, have you ever gotten one in the river? Wait, what? You got one in the river? And right there, right in the mainstone of the Chicago River, right in a hugely industrialized area across, this, across the river from the Merchandise Mart, which is the largest retail, retail area in the country, a five-year-old holding American yield. I beautiful. Never,
0: ever it. It's a beautiful thing. And by the by, the way, kids always catch the best fish. It's, it's so <laughs> cool to see this happen. But I would rather see that kid catch the fish than any adult like cheering about it because that means oh, more, it, 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 bigger impact. Now, it's not. I, I did a little Google search on this. Um, there are some evidence of these fish being caught in Chicago in 2014, 2013. But their numbers are. They're not measuring them in their studies. They're not seeing them in their in their shocking inventories. Because they're not, they're not all together, just like one fish here and there. So it's, it's really like a one in a million catch.
4: Yeah, and just happened to be looking for a crawler on Friday afternoon.
0: Everyone's looking for a crawler on a Friday <laughs> afternoon. Hey, so did they, they, they caught it, they photographed it, they released it.
4: Yeah, absolutely.
0: That's fantastic. And what did the kid think? Did you talk to the kid?
4: A little bit shocked. I don't know. You know, a five-year-old. I don't know if he could understand the true gravity of it. But he was just excited that he caught a fish that he had never seen before.
0: Yeah, and he wasn't afraid to hold it. I see photos of him holding it. His name is Richie Garcia. Yeah. And uh, yeah, totally amazing. It's totally fun. Yeah.
4: Now, I don't know if you could tell this from the from the picture, but I I brought stickers for the kids when they caught fish. I had like brought a panfish. I had a little sticker that, that said I, I love fish.
0: Oh, he's and, covered in them.
4: Yeah, and then I had little catfish stickers if you pulled out a channel cat to the kid. This kid's covered in stickers. He Like, within the first hour, he, had, he was covered. He, he was hammering panfish, and then he got a channel cat. I didn't think I'd need to bring an eel sticker. Maybe next year. So
0: <laughs> that's cool. And I'm sure he's enjoying his fishy fame. Um, but I, I, my, what struck me about this, besides just catching the fish, I'm not totally surprised to see an eel in Chicago, but was surprised to see how it lit up Twitter that day I, I that that i found more shocking than just some chicago eel making a big deal on twitter so i thought that was really fabulous
4: i think this this underscores and i hope that when you do get out there i can i can take you out on the river when we pull a fish out of the river we still hear more often than not holy crap there's fish in there so the fact that somebody pulled an eel out of that river i think is unique and rare and Jarring enough that it made people who would never ever think of an eel being in our waters pay attention.
0: That's fantastic. Uh, it's really it's really cool. Now you said you're from Central Massachusetts. Yes, where, you, where, where What town?
4: Uh, what a little town called Grafton.
0: Grafton, and that's uh, that's in that so like. So like near the Holyoke, Worcester, and there's all the old mill towns down there. Now I, I used to work in Central Massachusetts and then just outside of Boston as well, and I was always shocked that people weren't fishing all those urban rivers. And everywhere I travel, I'm like, why aren't those rivers full of people fishing? Because all these cities were built around rivers that were good fishing places historically, and and so it makes sense that people are fishing in the Chicago River and in. You know, whatever rivers running through Holyoke or Worcester or Lawrence, or these big rivers are full of fish. And like you said earlier, since the Clean Water Act, you know, it's, it's better quality water. The fish are better quality. It's more fun. It's cleaner. And I don't know, it's amazing. Even I was walking around Manhattan um, recently, and and I grew up on Governors Island, right in in fish off uh, in the Hudson Bay there. But I was walking down, and there was nobody fishing, and I couldn't believe. The fish is full the water's full of blue fish and full of other fishes and nobody's out there fishing. There's tens of millions of people. And we could have these fish nerds could be everywhere and they're watching T V or something. I have no idea.
4: <laughs> I think I think it's gonna pick up in Chicago. I think we're really turning some people onto it. You know sure. the other thing is the just the diversity of fish that are in the waterway is exploding.
0: Yeah. How many species of fish in Chicago do you know?
4: I think there's 20. 27 different species that they shocked in the Chicago River in that river yeah right you know, um,
0: statewide you've probably got um, in Illinois you probably have over 212 or something last time I checked we've in New Hampshire but just as a comparison we only have 48 uh, in the whole state so not the diversity that you guys got in the Midwest um, which is remarkable well
4: what what's interesting about the river when they first shocked the river I think this was back in the 70s they only found five species of And so, to know that there's that many more species there now, I saw another story this week um, about the Illinois River, which historically was a fantastic fishery um, that was destroyed by industrial waste and sewage and and everything. Where in the '70s, when they would electrofish, they would only find bluegill or they would only find carp and goldfish, and now they've got all the big fish back now they've got northern and walleye and largemouth smallmouth crappie and um we we actually had a guy of fish a northern out of the chicago river God. <laughs> about a winter and a half ago and i put everyone in my office on alert and if i ever pull a northern out on my lunch break i'm gone <laughs> it's over it's supposed to get any better right <laughs> that's right
0: that's right game over i'll say all right david thank you for bringing us that story that's fantastic special thanks this week in the news goes to captain sean Tibbetts from main dot efficient.com of course david jakubiak from the environmental law and policy center in chicago for their help elpc.org thank you guys so much for being part of this and helping straighten out our world All right, now time for Fish of the Day with Fish Guy Josh and our very own Doc Martin. God, I love that. I love those two together. They're just fabulous. We're going to learn about carp and goldfish this week, and then next week will be part two. This is only part one of of, uh, Fish of the Day. Enjoy.
1: Greetings, fellow fish nerds. It's time once again for another episode of Fish of the Day. Today, we're going to break down good old common carp and goldfish And in order to do that, let me properly introduce you to the real talent behind this segment, (laughs) Doc Martin.
5: Oh, good. So the bar's set way too high. (laughs) (laughs) If I had known that, maybe I would have worked a little bit harder, I think. (laughs) Well, this, you know,
1: this segment derived from your original segments on Fish Nerd. So, you know, you're the... You're the real meat and potatoes of this segment.
5: (laughs) Whether I like it or not, huh? All right. (laughs) That's right. Oh, that's funny. Okay. um, Uh,
1: So how's it going?
5: I am exhausted right now, even though I'm on break. So otherwise things are good. I just have a lot going on. Um, But two days of break gives me a little bit of time to do not teaching related things, which is nice, except I have a whole stack of 120 papers to grade. So... I get to do that this weekend. And,
1: <laughs> and your, your, uh, your aquarium uh, lab is going full bore now, too, girl. Yes.
5: My um, aquaria microcosms are officially set up, and I think they've been running for three days now. Um, Sweet. We only had one <laughs> minor crisis uh, at midnight on the first day. Um, something went wrong with the pipes and I got a very panicked call from my graduate students. It turns out it was fine. They just, something got unhooked a little bit wrong. So the flow wasn't turning over like it ought to. And that got yeah. fixed in two minutes. Um, but I was very, I was very concerned for like 30 minutes until they got back to me saying it was fine. So that was fun.
1: Yeah, I, <laughs> I can guarantee I will feel any and all pain of any posts you ever make about (laughs) your your system because, yeah, uh, majority of my work is in my makeshift aquarium lab and uh, (laughs) the majority of my... my manpower comes from me and high school students. So yeah, (laughs) Yeah. we're we're always, we're always falling into fun little uh, problems to deal with.
5: (laughs) And there's always fun little problems to deal with for sure.
1: (laughs) Always. But right now, (laughs) what happens when something runs constant?
5: Oh yeah. No kidding. But I'm just really pleased with how quickly, really quickly things have gone together. Um, I think I got the grants to fund that. The money came in February of this year, and now we're putting our first experiment in within a year. So that's not so bad. Um, yeah. This particular experiment, um, it's just looking at how temperature affects growth of southern red bellied dace. One of the species I did a lot of uh, studying on my for my dissertation work. Um, so. Cool. It's a very simple, uh, yeah, they're so cute, (laughs) but it's a really (laughs) simple study with some very predictable, I would think, outcomes, so not any groundbreaking science by any means, but it's a great way to make sure, is the system working, can we keep things alive in it for a long period of time? Um, Exactly. So it's a nice little pilot study, and so far, day three of three, we're good to go. (laughs) Cool.
1: Cool. I I look forward to, to seeing how it progresses. I could I could nerd out and talk about fish systems all day. <laughs> we could. That's a whole but other I segment. won't for <laughs> yeah, for sake of this segment going too long, I won't. And I will shift gears into our fish of the day. Um Common carp mm-hmm. with a little dash of goldfish today.
5: You got it. Yes. And, and uh, I have to do the goldfish because I'm. we're going to go through some of the mundane details. Well, maybe not mundane. I think they're very exciting, but maybe mundane to those that aren't <laughs> into it. To build up to my super exciting, fun fact about these guys. Okay. But I'm going to save that until the end. So you have to be in suspense right. the whole time.
1: <laughs> All right. I'm at, as a fish nerd... And an Aquarius nerd, I'm at I'm already on the edge of my seat. So let's <laughs> let's dive right in.
5: Alright. So um, the carp and the goldfish, they're in class actinopterygii, which is the Rafin fishes and also fun to say. So the actin, that prefix, is a Greek origin that just means ray or thunderbolt or beam. And then the pterygii, which has a silent P like pterodactyl, not the same thing, although close, because it does from, come from Greek, and it comes from um, a mixture and kind of twist on the pteryx, which means wing. So pterodactyl... Actinopterygii. You have ray finned fishes. So there you go.
1: Okay. <laughs> and then that, uh, that totally makes sense when you explain <laughs> it like
5: that. Yeah. So I know uh, there's a couple of the uh, fish nerd fans out there that always get on my case about using Latin and Greek. So uh, it's a little bit of extra bonus material for them to mull over, I guess.
1: <laughs> and, and it's it's pretty badass. It's like ray finned fishes, AKA Thunderbolt pterodactyls.
5: Yeah, well, thunderbolt wings. Right? Heck yeah! Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> um,
1: that would be that would be a great way for me to remember that uh, if I were back in undergrad in my fishes class because I used to always come up with little fun facts and rhymes to help me remember. My uh, scientific names when I had a test.
5: Oh, yeah. And, and I, God, yeah, ichthyology. That's where they really uh, beat those into you, right? <laughs> yeah. Yep. And so I always broke it down just like I do now, and that helped me a lot when I was a student, yeah, for sure. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> um, so from class actinopterigii, we're going to go into the order, cypriniformes, and then the family cyprinidae. So those two sound the same. One's an order, one's a family. Um, again, from Greek... The Cyprino kind of prefix there just kind of means um, gold, goldish, um, and then or goldfish, and then the end, the formies just means shape. So it's literally it's goldfish-shaped fish, which is kind goldfish of fun. <laughs> and most of <laughs> us know what a goldfish looks like, and it's like yeah, okay, that could be some of those fishes. And say Cypriniformes. There's a, a big order though, so it covers a lot, a lot of different yeah. ones. Um I have a question for you. Okay. I did not know this. How many <laughs> species of carp exist in the world? Uh, well, I don't know off the
1: top of my head, but i would I would be curious as to what whether or not they're all under the same cyprinidae or not like I know you know silver carp and big head carp are not really closely related to common carp I've heard so I don't I don't really know what are, are we are we qualifying a carp
5: as like cyprinidae or so that's are a they all great to be under question cyprinidae? because carp is a very vague term It means lots of different things. It's like Um, like perch. Right. (laughs) Well, isn't most things, aren't most things perch? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, But for this one, I was thinking mostly what most, especially fishermen would colloquially refer to as something as a carp. Um, Most of those are going to fall under family Cyprinidae, but they are not all in the same genus, if that is helpful.
1: I mean, off the top of my head, I can think of, at least in the U.S., maybe five. But I know there's like the those gigantic carp that I've seen on monster fish out in, uh, in Thailand. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I'm just going to take a shot in the dark and say, uh, I don't know.
5: Nine. Okay. So actually that was really close to what I had thought. I was like, Oh yeah, you know, half a dozen, maybe a dozen that I don't know about. And there's more like 30. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And these are, this is just a short list. Um, I, I will go on record saying that I looked up, uh, the list underneath the genus, uh, underneath the family, Cyprinidae, and just looked for the genus names that I would immediately recognize as something that is carp or carp-like. And then I just copied okay. and pasted that list. And so most of them are in the genus Cyprinus, which the common carp is um, Cyprinus carpio. Mm-hmm. There's a few the different... British carpio. Yeah. Then there's a few different in Carassius, so that's the goldfish genus.
1: That's the goldie.
5: And okay. then you have. I did know those two. Yes, and <laughs> then you have your um, the big head, the silver carps, the jumping carps, if you will, mm-hmm. and that one's a big mouthful, the hypothalamicthes. and uh yeah it's it's a lot more letters in writing than i think that i might be pronouncing (laughs) 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 so um but yeah so i was actually pretty surprised most of them are not in the united states so if most i think most of our fans live in the u.s so that might also come as a surprise to them for our fans over maybe in in china or eurasia they'll be like duh how did you not know that so (laughs) yeah (laughs) so sorry everybody else in the world um So the two species that I want to focus on today, we'll start with the goldfish, I think, because that's kind of secondary um, to, mm-hmm. to my personal in- interests. <laughs> um, so Crassius aratus. So um, that's just it's a kind of a fun one, and the aratus just means gilded. So gilded, huh? yeah, gilded or gold. Um, and then the Carassius, the genus name, just comes from what they call them over in Eurasia. So it's just, oh, okay. yeah, it's just a goldfish. <laughs> they put it together, goldfish. Ta-da. Um, of the goldfish, if you go to the pet store, you see a bunch of crazy kinds. They're all called goldfish, but they mm-hmm. all have fun names. So those are all still technically goldfish, Carassius auratus. Yeah. Um, but there's about 300 different breeds that. Uh, if you want to do subspecies or whatever, but they still fall genetically underneath that carassia serratus.
1: Yeah. So lots Yeah, of that's usually kinds. one of my, uh, fun facts when we have the mobile fish exhibit out, we have some of the oh, wild nice. type goldfish in the tank and mm-hmm. a couple are just released gold, like standard goldfish. And, uh, yeah, always, uh, people are usually amazed and I'm like, yeah, all the, you know the. The fantail and the bubble eyes and all that stuff—that's all the same thing. They're mm-hmm. like, wow, really?
5: Yep, just slight variations, but still technically yeah. the same species. It's pretty cool. Um, oh, how how big do goldfish get? What's the biggest goldfish that a fisherman has ever caught?
1: This is. Uh, let's see. Well, I have. I have carp in my collection goldfish in my collection and i also have some hybrids of the two um so i assume the hybrids can get bigger but if we're talking regular goldfish regular goldfish uh, let's see i would guess over 10 And i know they can get pretty big for a goldfish at least Mm -hmm. so i would guess over 10 under 20
5: very good 16 inches okay five pounds
1: Five pounds, huh?
5: And that sucker okay. came from a pond in England somewhere in two in twenty ten. Mm. So okay, because most people think goldfish. Oh, those are those cute little things you put in a tiny fish bowl. And they don't oh, get very no. big, and they can get super big. It turns out. <laughs>
1: yeah, I have, I have several several specimens in the collection that are definitely a couple pounds, and people are usually surprised when they see that.
5: Mm-hmm. And um, the goldfish are native. So I always I always think that's really interesting, especially for students that are you know K through 12 age or don't or you know anyone that doesn't really know much mm-hmm. about where fish come from. But when I, I worked in a pet store for a long time, and it's fun to tell people that like these fish that you see are native somewhere else. Like you're buying these really pretty little yeah. fish and you're putting them in your aquaria because they don't live here. And it's like, no, those those actually live. In the wild, other places that somewhere you somewhere else, live. they're
1: yeah. just boring fish in the in the you find in the
5: creek. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it's like oh, we used to pick those up and play with them when we were little kids, but we'll yeah. we'll pay money for them. <laughs> that, that always kind of cracked me up. Um, but these guys are native to um, Central Asia, China, and Japan, but they're now introduced almost throughout the world. Um, they're pretty hardy, oh, yeah. so they're all over the U S um, all over Australia for sure. Um, there's a few countries that have reported adverse ecological impacts after introduction. Mm -hmm. Um, but not all, it kind of depends, but that's an eco, that's an ecology talk, not a fish of the day talk. (laughs) (laughs) Um, they will inhabit rivers, lakes, ponds, ditches with stagnant or slow flowing water Um, They don't mind eutrophic waters, and so eutrophic, that's that green, smelly stuff when you have a lot of nutrients and your algal um, communities can get really bad. Most people don't like that, especially if they want to go swimming. It's usually pretty gross. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They live better in cold water, and they feed mainly on plankton and benthic invertebrates and some detritus. Okay, so that's just. They're a
1: little tougher to catch than uh, regular carp, too. A little I, I tougher. to catch them,
5: yeah. Uh, probably a little, a little more rare than regular carp, I would guess. Also.
1: Yeah, you have to find. I mean, we have a few bodies of water out here where we go electrofishing. Where there's there's a couple that are just loaded with goldfish, um, which is also where I get some of the hybrids from time to time as well.
5: Mm-hmm. Do you have any? Uh, University ponds. I know that most of the universities I go to because university students will buy a goldfish to keep in their dorm room. And then when they mm. move out, they don't want to bring their newfound pet with and they dump <laughs> them in the local pond.
1: So We, we don't have any here, but I, I'm friends with a few guys up at UC Davis and I think they have that issue in uh-huh. a couple of their <laughs> campus
5: ponds. Yeah. Yep. The little rascal, <laughs> rascal college kids, shake your fist at them. Yeah. <laughs> it's invasive species, don't you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so the goldfish lay eggs on submerged vegetation. Um, so they like cold water, um, and they actually need cold water for the eggs to develop properly, but juveniles will need a little bit higher temperature to grow. That's not too surprising. Um, yeah. And the the eggs of the goldfish are sticky, and they attach to water or submerged plants and objects, or tanks, or uh, waiters, <laughs> or measuring boards. Yeah, if it's
1: submerged, <laughs>
5: yep.
1: yeah, those things are not fun
5: to deal with. <laughs> and uh, no, and there's a lot of them. They will they will spawn and spawn and spawn. Oh my god, it's so many.
1: <laughs> yeah. All right, fish nerds. We're going to take a pause right there on Fish of the Day because Doc and I had so many good things to talk about and started going so deep into our discussion that we decided it was best to break this down into two Fish of the Day segments. So we're going to pause right there on the end of Goldfish and stay tuned next week where we're going to really dive into more information about carp. We'll see you next time.
0: So that's it. You've listened to a whole bunch of fish nerds when you should have been fishing. Big thanks to our families for supporting us while we podcast, go on Fishing quests, and do all sorts of silly things that nerds do. Special thanks to Fish Guy Josh. Of course, go to his YouTube channel. Check him out. Captain Sean Tibbets from Maine, Tunafishing.com, Doc Martin. Of course, you can find her at our Facebook group. David Jakubiak from the elpc.org and of course thanks to Nick Hudson squagger from Diana's Bath Salt for mixing the show and being our audio nerd we would have a hard time making this without him and until next time follow the code of the fish nerd spawn early and often never trust a free lunch with strings attached and swim against the current every chance you get thank you guys enjoy your week <laughs>